Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It is Thursday, March 9. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, Ban on Gender Affirming Care for Minors Passes. This story is by Erin Murphy and Caleb McCullough for the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. A proposed ban on gender-affirming care for minors in Iowa is on its way to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk. Republican state lawmakers passed the ban and other LGBTQ bills over the past few days, putting them en route to Reynolds on Wednesday. Reynolds' office did not immediately respond when asked whether she plans to sign the bill into law once it reaches her. Thousands of Iowans have publicly protested this bill and others that have been moving through the Iowa legislature over the past week. Students at dozens of schools across the state walked out of classes, and hundreds attended two rallies at the Iowa Capitol this past week, on Sunday and again Wednesday. If the bill is signed into law, it likely will be at least temporarily halted by a legal challenge. Similar bills in other states are being challenged in the courts, including in Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, and Texas. Republican legislators who proposed and advanced the ban on gender-affirming care say it is necessary to protect children from medical care and treatments when the science is not settled, even though all major medical groups in the U.S. say the treatments are safe and the vast majority of studies show the care leads to better mental health outcomes. During debate Wednesday, Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, who oversaw the bill's movement in the Iowa House, pointed to studies in Europe, including one that says more study is needed on the long-term effects of gender-affirming care. The study says there is some evidence that individuals who have sex reassignment have considerably higher risks for mortality suicidal behavior, and psychiatric morbidity than the general population. Our children deserve the time to grow into themselves, to find themselves, to go through phases without medical interventions that are unproven in their efficacy, Holt said. It is for these reasons that I believe we should wait on these life-altering procedures and therapies for children until they are adults. During debate in the Iowa Senate on Tuesday, Senator Jeff Edler, Republican from State Center, who oversaw the bill's movement in that chamber, pointed to a study that he said illustrates his concern for the long-term impacts of hormonal treatment. The 2018 study, which can be found on the American Academy of Pediatrics website, says the long-term side effects of hormonal treatment could include bone density loss, and also says more research is needed on those long-term impacts. However, it also concludes the treatments benefit the patients and generally are safe. Republican Representative Jeff Shipley pointed to the guidance from the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which says the number of studies is still low and there are few outcome studies that follow youth into adulthood. Still, those guidelines recommend puberty blockers and hormone treatment in adolescents with gender dysphoria who meet certain conditions, and the organization vehemently opposes bills like the one passed by Iowa Republicans. Representative Austin Baith, a Democrat from Des Moines who is a physician, noted the preponderance of evidence continues to show that while the treatments sometimes come with side effects, that they are safe and that studies and physicians that cast doubt on the treatment's safety are outliers. 
It takes lots of physicians to come together looking at all the studies, not cherry-pick them to support an agenda, Baith said, but looking at the mountain of evidence, the preponderance of evidence, and deciding what is the most likely answer to this question. The bill would ban doctors in the state from providing puberty blockers, hormones, and surgeries to minors under 18 to treat gender dysphoria. Doctors who violate the bill would be subject to discipline from a state licensing board, and individuals could bring lawsuits against doctors who perform gender-affirming care. Minors who are receiving medical treatment now would have 180 days to discontinue that care. Representative Brian Lose, a Republican from Bondurant, who was one of the five House Republicans voting against the bill, said the bill runs counter to the parental choice mantra Republicans frequently champion. The doctors who testified to lawmakers in February said puberty blockers, medications that stop the onset of puberty, are reversible, while the effects of hormone treatment are mostly reversible. Surgery, which generally means breast reduction, is not reversible. Doctors also told lawmakers that gender-affirming care is a practice that occurs after months of careful evaluation from multiple doctors and that parental consent is always involved. Democrats said the bill is a rash reaction to concerns over the efficacy of the care, noting all major medical organizations in the U.S. support interventions for youth with persistent gender dysphoria. The American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Psychiatric Association all include gender-affirming care for youth in their guidelines. As lawmakers deliberated the bills, a couple of hundred people gathered in the Capitol's first-floor rotunda to protest the measures they said would harm LGBTQ youth and strip them of their rights. Joe Allen, a photographer from Des Moines who is non-binary, said it is difficult to live in Iowa given the legislation under consideration. A few speakers at the rally said they are considering leaving the state over the proposals. Anti-trans bills have nothing to do with privacy but are focused on expelling trans folks from public life, Allen said. We are not going anywhere. And despite the bills that you put out against us, we will continue to be our most authentic trans selves. Just north of Iowa on Wednesday, Minnesota Governor Tim Walz, a Democrat, signed an executive order that protects trans people, families, and care providers from a range of legal repercussions for traveling to Minnesota for gender-affirming care the Associated Press reported. The Senate late Tuesday also passed a bill that would prohibit transgender students from using school bathrooms that correspond with their gender identity. Senate Republicans described the proposal as common sense and a way to ensure the privacy and safety of all Iowa students. Data overwhelmingly shows that incidents of sexual assault in school bathrooms are rare and that transgender individuals are far more likely to be victims of sexual assault than non-transgender people, including at schools with prescriptive bathroom policies. Also on the front page this morning, despite snowy forecasts, parade still on for Saturday. This by Brittany Miller. Another winter storm is projected to blow through eastern Iowa today into early Friday, but it won't ruin Saturday's St. Patrick's Day Parade in downtown Cedar Rapids, organizers insisted. 
We're like the mailman. The weather doesn't matter. Rain, sleet, snow, said Michelle Lochner, president of the St. Patrick's Day Parade Society, or Sa Pa Da Pa So, the nonprofit organization for the event. The storm could dump as much as eight inches of snow in Cedar Rapids into tonight, according to the National Weather Service's Quad Cities Bureau. The city has a 56% chance of more than six inches of snow and an 81% chance of more than four inches. Up to nine inches of powder could blanket areas north of the city like Waterloo and Dubuque. Forecasts decrease in severity further south. Iowa City could get up to six inches and Burlington may receive only an inch. Despite the snow, the 48th annual St. Patrick's Day Parade will still launch at 1 p.m. on Saturday. It will start at the corner of 6th Street and 3rd Avenue Southeast, weave through downtown, and end by the Cedar Rapids Downtown Public Library. It will last between an hour and an hour and a half. The parade has been canceled only once in its history, March of 2020, due to COVID-19. Weather won't be a problem for this year's event, Lochner assured. We're ready for it, she said. It's Iowa. It's March. You never know what you're going to get for weather. Hopefully, everyone bundles up. Any snow from today should be cleared from downtown roads by the parade start, said Cedar Rapids Public Works Assistant Director Michael Duffy. But there may be additional snowfall Saturday and Sunday to be dealt with. Additionally, cleared snow pushed to the curb lines likely won't be removed in time for the event. The winter storm is anticipated to restrict visibility and cover roads, making travel dangerous. Turning now to the Iowa Today page, voters in Swisher say no to public water system. Swisher voters rejected development of a public water system during a special election on Tuesday. This story is by Isabella Zaluska. The public measure, which needed 50% of votes to pass, failed, with 401 voters, or 84.2%, voting no. A total of 75 voters, or 15.8%, voted yes. A total of 476 residents voted in the special election for 72.34% turnout, according to unofficial results. The conversation to put this measure on the ballot was in light of anticipated growth, a desire to improve fire response, and concerns about contaminated water. The Jefferson-Monroe Fire Department is the only fire department in Johnson County without a public water system. The city had a previous special election to develop a municipal water system in February of 1999. The measure failed with 72% of voters voting no and 28% voting yes. A total of 395 residents voted, according to Johnson County Archives. Only residents living within Swisher city limits were eligible to vote in this election. Residents with a Swisher address who lived outside of the city limits were not part of the vote. Most Swisher city residents are served by private wells, but the city does have some public water systems. There are seven public water systems and about 95 private wells. In 2019, there was a renewed interest to explore the possibility of a municipal water system and a water feasibility committee was formed. Cedar Rapids-based H.R. Green was hired to evaluate alternatives for water supply, treatment, storage, and distribution, 
as well as conduct a water system study. The firm explored what infrastructure would be needed to move forward with a public water system if approved. H.R. Green hosted public information meetings about the $19.2 million project. Residents raised concerns at these meetings about the project costs, user rates, and other uncertainties. Swisher resident Chad Valvik said Wednesday one of the main reasons he was against the measure was the cost. He said other residents also were worried about the unknown monthly expense. Velvet created the Swisher City Water Forum page on Facebook in early February as a way for residents to communicate ahead of the vote and engage with one another about what they've heard and their questions. The group had just under 240 members ahead of the special election. If the message of the proposal had stayed consistent, it would have been a little easier to maybe discuss that part. But it moved a little bit, so people really didn't know what they were going to end up paying, Velvick said. Velvick also mentioned another factor residents were uncomfortable with was the amount of time to digest the information. It was about seven weeks from the first city mailer to the special election. The cost and the speed was just very worrisome, Velvick said. Swisher Mayor Chris Taylor previously told the Gazette that the questions and concerns brought up during the water discussion such as improving fire response and addressing contaminated water, will still need solutions if the vote fails. Taylor said on Wednesday the results showed that for some of the issues, like contaminated water, residents would prefer to address them as individuals rather than collectively as a city. I think the city will need to look at those problems with that in mind, Taylor said. Taylor added the city council will need to look at lessons learned resident concerns, and the research that has been done over the last three years as they discuss next steps. One thing that we can do now to help put the city in stronger position, if this does come down the line, is to keep a record of what happened this time around, Taylor said, adding the city didn't have much information from the 1999 vote. By keeping an archive of information, Taylor said his hope is that it will be helpful for future city leaders to see what residents were concerned about. The city will need to wait at least four years before the issue can be put on the ballot again. Regardless of the outcome, I absolutely think it was time to once again put it to voters and just see what they wanted to do next, Taylor said. Also on the Iowa Today page, voters pass school bonds for Solon and Iowa Valley. Benton Community School District voters reject a 48.5 million school bond referendum. And this article is by Grace King. Voters in Solon and Iowa Valley School Districts said yes Tuesday to school bond referendums that will fund facility improvements. A 22, or excuse me, $25.5 million bond referendum in the Solon Community School District will fund improvements to Lakeview Elementary School an expansion of its intermediate school, and construction of a multi-purpose indoor activity center. For Iowa Valley, a $10.6 million bond referendum will provide funds to renovate, repair, remodel, improve, and furnish the existing elementary and junior-senior high school buildings. A bond requires 60% majority vote to pass. Benton Community School District residents voted no to a $48.5 million school bond referendum that would have funded school improvement projects including 
building a new elementary school in Van Horn. Residents opposed the bond for Benton Schools Tuesday with 64% voting against the measure and 65% voting against a levy to pay the principal of the bond. <clears throat> this was the first bond to be proposed in the district for 44 years. The last bond referendum was approved in 1979 and took the school district 10 tries to get passed by voters, Benton Community Superintendent Pamela Ewell said. The district can't wait another 10 years to fund needed improvement projects in the district, Ewell said. People misunderstand the gravity of what we're trying to do. The issues we look forward on, or took forward on the referendum are still present, and our vision for a quality education for our kids still is strong. Other possible funding options include sales tax dollars for urgent improvement needs at Atkins Elementary and the high school and middle school, or another general obligation bond referendum in the fall. Ewell said sales tax dollars can't fund the large capital improvement projects the district needs. The school board will look at survey data regarding the bond referendum and make a decision on how to proceed, Ewell said. The bond issue would have increased property taxes by $4.05 per $1,000 of taxable value. The district's current tax levy is $9.70, one of the lowest in the Grantwood Area Education Agency region. And in other Iowa Today news, Will Farrell makes a surprise visit to Iowa City. Anchor and, or excuse me, actor and comedian Will Farrell made a surprise stop at the Deadwood Tavern in downtown Iowa City on Wednesday. The star of Anchorman and Elf is producing a documentary that he's told fans is a coast-to-coast -coast road trip documentary. Before stopping in Iowa City, Farrell, age 55, was spotted at an Indiana Pacers game, a Walmart parking lot in Beach Grove, Indiana, and a karaoke bar in Peoria, Illinois. Social media erupted in Iowa City with fans surprised and excited to see the star of Step Brothers and Talladega Nights in person. And this story by Emily Anderson, a woman charged with vehicular homicide. An Edgewood woman was arrested over the weekend on charges related to a fatal ATV crash that happened almost two years ago in Edgewood. Hannah Lee Meese, age 26, is charged with homicide by vehicle, operating under the influence of felony. According to a criminal complaint, Meese, whose last name was Colic at the time, was driving a 2020 Kawasaki ATV on May 2, 2021. She lost control of the vehicle while turning onto South Chestnut Street from Woods Edge Drive in Edgewood. Meese and her passenger, Jordan Gerald Kabalka, age 31, were thrown from the ATV. Kabalka died at the scene and Meese sustained serious injuries, the complaint states. While Meese was at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, police completed a search warrant and tested her blood. She had a blood alcohol content over 0.08. The complaint doesn't say why it took two years for Meese to be charged. A warrant was issued for her arrest February 27, and she was taken into custody by the Iowa State Patrol on Saturday. She was released from jail after posting a $25,000 bond. Her initial appearance in court has been scheduled for March 22nd.
Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial, is a reprint from Tuesday's St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and the title is Crack Down on Child Labor. The Biden administration says it will crack down on the use of migrant child labor at U.S. plants and factories serving some of the nation's biggest brand names. Think Frito-Lay, Nature Valley Granola Bars, Lucky Charms, J. Crew, and Cheetos. Now think of exhausted children working under conditions that have led to severed fingers, head wounds, or even lost lives, including a dozen young migrant workers since 2017, according to the New York Times. The workplace crackdown is long overdue, but it solves only half the problem. Many of the youths who have crossed into the United States illegally have done so without their parents, some reunited with their parents on this side. But in nearly all cases, they were fleeing dire conditions at home and are working in the United States out of desperate economic necessity. That necessity won't end with the crackdown. Some might argue that it serves them right and that they should go back where they came from. If it were that easy, the immigration problem would have been solved decades ago. Many of these children are fleeing intolerable situations at home, forced gang recruitment, kidnapping for ransom, or sale to sex traffickers. They are granted temporary U.S. entry while their asylum cases are processed, as is their legal right regardless of whether a Republican or a Democratic administration is in power. Adult caregivers are willing to look the other way because they need the financial contributions the children provide. Factory bosses look the other way because they need the cheap labor. Child labor laws are being broken everywhere. What is shocking is the involvement of name brand companies. Many have been caught doing this abroad, but employers tend to be far more vigilant about following child labor laws at home. The New York Times was able to cite examples of child labor going into products sold by Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, Target, Whole Foods, Ford, and General Motors. In many cases, the children are attending school during the day before immediately heading off to work. Their exhaustion makes them even more vulnerable to disfiguring workplace accidents. The crackdown plus the embarrassment of exposure should be enough to halt the practice, but the need to support kids in desperate circumstances won't go away. And the guest column today, Don't Scrap History of Defending Freedom of Expression. Iowa is home to one of the most important First Amendment slam dunks in history. When 13-year-old Mary Beth Tinker stood up for her right to wear a black armband to protest the Vietnam War, she successfully defended that right from the halls of her junior high school all the way to the Supreme Court. In fact, February marked the 54th anniversary of the court's ruling that students do not shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. But today, our state's proud history of defending free expression is at risk. Under a recent proposal from Governor Kim Reynolds, if any Iowa school decides to remove a book from a library, every school around the state must do the same. The books would be taken off the shelves, even in communities that want their children to have access to those titles, and the state would add it to a government blacklist of banned books. Sounds more like China than Cedar Rapids. Under the proposal, the smallest towns in Iowa could dictate statewide policy for all public schools. 
the most sensor-happy community would turn vibrant libraries into the places where the lowest common denominator, denominator, only the most boring and uncontroversial titles, may be available. That's not the Iowa I believe in. Iowa is a beautiful, unique state defined by rural communities. I grew up in one of those communities, Pleasantville, population 1600. I love my hometown, but small towns like mine shouldn't decide what books are banned from libraries in cities like Cedar Rapids. And Cedar Rapids shouldn't ban books in Pleasantville either. That's the thing about censorship. It rarely stays contained. Politically opposed communities would be in a race to the bottom, banning books that don't want, they don't want others to read and limiting the possibility that our students have the choice to grapple with new and challenging ideas. Iowa could avoid this hassle altogether by ignoring censorship advocates' calls for banning library books. We should soundly reject the idea of a government blacklist and stand up for the rights of individuals to make their own decisions. As a First Amendment lawyer at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, I encounter arguments in favor of censorship on a daily basis. At the end of each day, however, I believe that each of us ought to be given the chance to encounter controversial ideas and to disagree with them if we wish. Iowans should resist the urge to join the growing trend of censorship and recommit to the value of free expression that has reigned in our state since Mary Beth Tinker refused to remove her black armband. That's what Iowa stands for. And that's submitted by Greg Harold Grubel, who is grad, a graduate of Pleasantville High School and also a graduate of the University of Northern Iowa. He attended Villanova University School of Law and works as an attorney at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And we have one community letter today. This is from Jay Stolba in Cedar Rapids, and the letter is titled, Streamlined is Good, Governor's Plan Isn't. I applaud the idea of streamlining administrative agencies in state government, but I have several problems with the proposed plan. The plan disregards differences of localities and regions. Towns and cities are handcuffed when trying to raise funds for local needs, be it schools, roads, or infrastructure, by controlling local bonding and taxation options. State government is attempting to control regional judicial boards, which are designed to deal with regional needs by using a one-size-fits-all plan. This ignores differences between regions. Urban areas like District 6 and Eastern Iowa deal with different circumstances than a primarily rural area like District 8. The plan further consolidates power to a very few, and particularly to the governor, who plans to eliminate terms of board members and others by making their employment at the governor's discretion, eliminating any chance of opposing positions. As a taxpayer, I want efficient use of taxpayer dollars, but this is a power grab. The state government has shown itself to be a friend of the moneyed with tax cuts that disproportionately favor the wealthy. Let's make a plan that is well thought through and benefits all Iowans. And that is signed by Jay Stolba of Cedar Rapids. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It is Thursday, March 9, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. 
There are no short notices, so we'll go right to the regular notices first from Cedar Rapids. Brandon Beaudry passed away March 6th from complications of multiple cancers in the presence of loved ones while on home hospice. The family thanks Dr. Wilbur and her team at the Hall Perrin Cancer Center for their skilled and compassionate care. Memorial donations in his honor may be made to the Cedar Valley Humane Society. From Cedar Rapids, Sally Jo Sims Baumgartner, age 80, of Cedar Rapids, formerly of Marengo, died Thursday, February 23. There will be a celebration of life later this year. From Cedar Rapids, Dolores Marie Caden, age 92, died Sunday, March 5, at Mercy Hallmar. Services are at 10 a.m. Tuesday at St. Jude Catholic Church by celebrants Reverend Nick March and Reverend Jack Flaherty. Burial will be at St. John Cemetery. A vigil service will be held at 4 p.m. Monday at Tian Funeral Home. Those not attending the vigil service may visit with the family on Monday from 4.30 to 7 at the funeral home and on Wednesday after 9 a.m. at the church. Online condolences can be left at tnfuneralhome.com. In Cedar Rapids, Floyd Mervyn Totten, age 94, born March 10, 1928, passed away March 7 at Summit Point in Marion. Floyd suffered from Alzheimer's at the end of life, with his family staying close by his side. Visitation will be from 2 to 3 p.m. Sunday, March 12, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. His funeral service is at 3 p.m. Sunday, March 12, at Cedar Memorial. A live stream of the funeral service may be accessed on the funeral home website under the obituary for Floyd Mervyn Totten. From Cedar Rapids, Aicha Kim Wessels, age 81, a resident of Columbia, Tennessee, passed away Thursday, March 2, at Centennial Medical Center in Nashville. A funeral service will be held at 2 p.m. Sunday, March 12, at Heritage Funeral Home in Columbia, Tennessee, with Mike Stalnaker officiating burial to follow at Maury Memorial Gardens. A visitation will be held from noon to 2 p.m. Sunday, March 12, at the funeral home. Heritage Funeral Home is assisting the family with arrangements. From Chelsea, Stanley Charles Ledvina, age 92, passed away March 7 at Premier Estates in Toledo, Iowa. Visitation will be from 3 to 6 p.m. Tuesday, March 14, at Rabbit Newhouse Funeral Service. Funeral service is 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, March 15, at the funeral home. Burial will take place at National Cemetery in Vining, Iowa. Newhouse Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. From Chelsea, Stephen, known as Boat Leroy Slavin, 64, passed away March 7, at the Iowa River Hospice House in Marshalltown. A rosary will be said at 4 p.m. Monday, March 13, followed by visitation from 4.30 to 7 at Rabbit Newhouse Funeral Service in Belle Plaine. Mass of Christian Burial will be at 10 a.m. Tuesday, March 14th at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Chelsea. NewhouseFuneralService.com is where you can leave an online condolence. From Iowa City, Alberta May Code, age 91, of Iowa City died Sunday, March 5 at the Oak Knoll Retirement Community. 
A private memorial service will be held later this spring for the immediate family. Lensing Funeral Home is assisting. From Beaufort, South Carolina, Lloyd H. Sidwell II, age 80, passed away Tuesday, March 7. He was born September 21, 1942, in Cedar Rapids. A full online obituary is available at copelandfuneralservice.com. And in Iowa City, Loretta M. Patterson, age 99, passed away February 23 at Crestview Care Center in West Branch. A rosary will be decided at 3.30 p.m. Wednesday, March 15th at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City. Visitation will follow from 4 to 6 p.m. Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 11 a.m. Thursday, March 16th at St. Patrick's Catholic Church. Interment will immediately follow at Memory Gardens Cemetery. From Manchester, Robert, known as Robbie Brown, left this world on March 7 at age 52. Robbie will be honored in a celebration of flight ceremony in the summer of 2023. Dates and times will be announced later. Leonard Muller Funeral Home is assisting the family. And our final obituary today from Winchester, Virginia, Leona Sprinzel Choi changed her permanent address to heaven on Thursday, March 2, at the age of 97, surrounded by her loving family at home. On Monday, March 13, a time of fellowship with coffee and tea and light snacks will be offered from 10 to 11 a.m. at Omps Funeral Home Reception Center Amherst Chapel, that's at 1600 Amherst Street in Winchester, Virginia. A celebration of life service will follow at 11 a.m. and burial will be private for immediate family. OmpsFuneralHome.com is where you can leave an obituary condolence. Turning now to the sports page, a shocking end is the headline for today's sports page. This by Jeff Johnson. Few saw that one coming, very few, but it was no fluke. In this game, on this court, on this day and time, Pleasant Valley was the better basketball team. So Cedar Rapids Kennedy's extraordinary historic season concludes, not with a state championship, but with a stunning 57-45 to loss to Pleasant Valley in the Class 4A quarterfinal Wednesday afternoon at Wells Fargo Arena. Wow. Just wow. Looking back on it now, I don't even know what went wrong with us, said Kennedy's Micah Schlock. We can't blame anyone but ourselves. Kennedy, at 22-1, and finished a regular season unbeaten for the first time, went into the postseason ranked number one. The Cougars laid waste to virtually every opponent, winning by an average of over 31 points per game, Their closest was a 9-pointer over Cedar Falls and a 7-pointer over Iowa City West. They beat North Scott in a sub-state final by 28 points. Unranked and 8th-seeded Pleasant Valley, with a record of 20-5, and beat North Scott by 3 points twice in the regular season. And upset? Nah, not here. Only, yeah, here. You've got to do two things against Kennedy, Pleasant Valley coach Steve Hillman said. You can't have live ball turnovers, and I thought we did a nice job of keeping our composure and not coughing it up. We had a few, but you're going to have that. 
The second thing is, defensively, you've got to be keyed in. You can't let them score around the rim. You've got to take the side threes away. So honestly, it was just us not overturning it, not turning it over and being focused defensively. Pleasant Valley had a 22-0 record last season before being upset in sub-state final. Irony. We knew Kennedy was a good team. We were that team last year being undefeated and being a little too confident, thinking we were better than we are, said PV's Connor Borbeck. We knew going into this game it was going to be a toughness game. It's a little bigger court and a whole different atmosphere than what we were used to. The tougher team was going to win the game, and we believed we were the tougher, so we won. Thus, Pleasant Valley moves on to this afternoon's 4A semifinals. Kennedy unexpectedly gets to reflect on the oh-so-many-things-it-accomplished this season. And the one thing it didn't. It just wasn't our game, said Kennedy's Cyrus Courtney. It hurts, and it's going to hurt, McCowan said, but there's no regrets because there's not one thing you would go back and change and say, you should have done this differently. If this kid would have worked a little harder, they all worked as hard as they could every single day. In Class 3A, it's back to the semifinals for the States, or excuse me, the Saints, this by Jeff Johnson. There was some yammering out there in the social media world when Class 3A state basketball tournament seeds and pairings were announced last week. Not so much with the top seeds. Bondurant Farrar is the only unbeaten team in the class and was an obvious one. Cedar Rapids Xavier and Marion were the next highest ranked teams by the Iowa High School Athletic Association to qualify, so they were pretty obvious two and three. Where the disagreement and discontent really began was with Des Moines Hoover. The Huskies played a predominantly 4A schedule and looked uber good in three sub-state wins, especially the last two over a ranked Williamsburg team and a Waverly Shell Rock Club that was ranked some of the season. The thought was, and definitely there was some legitimacy to it, that Hoover was better than the seventh seed it carried. And to be honest, Xavier coach Mike Freeman wasn't overly pleased to see it either, because that meant his Saints had to play Hoover in Tuesday night's quarterfinals. But as one of the oldest cliches go, you got to beat the best to be the best. And Xavier played well, especially on the defensive end, to pick up a 49-38 to victory. The Saints, at 19-6, and six, are in the semifinals for the first time since 2018 when they got there for a fourth consecutive year. The opponent is Sioux City Helan, which vanquished Marion in Tuesday night's first 3A quarterfinal. Turning now to the hoopla section, here are some St. Patrick's events on tap in eastern Iowa. Celebrations start this weekend and continue through next. This is by Diana Nolan. The Cedar Rapids St. Patrick's Day Parade Society is getting a jump on the holiday, staging the 48th parade this Saturday rather than on March 17, a new Saturday before St. Patrick's Day tradition that began in 2021. Dubbed the Shenanigans Continue, Saturday's parade will snake around downtown from 1 to 2 p.m., beginning on 6th Street, turning down 2nd Avenue to 1st Street, then back up 3rd Avenue and ending on 5th Street behind the Cedar Rapids Public Library. So far, the parade has more than 60 entries. The Saturday move came from when the local parade committee 
or Society, held a drive-by event at Hawkeye Downs in 2021, and when the parade returned to its usual downtown route in 2022, organizers kept it on a Saturday afternoon. Moving the parade to the weekend solves several problems. Tammy Manili, last year's president, noted, If we were to sum it up, it really comes down to sustainability and supportability, she said. We need to make it easy to join the parade, participate in the parade, and we have to make it easy to get volunteers to help support the event. The weather forecast calls for a chilly but sunny 36 degrees, so bundle up. Judging results will be announced around 4.30 p.m. via Facebook from Whiskey Joe's Pub and Grub, 4617 J Street Southwest in Cedar Rapids. On March 17, the St. Patrick's Day Bash takes place at the Olympic Southside Theater. $12 cover charge. There are raffles and prizes. The St. Patrick's Day Brewery Bash takes place from 4 to 10 p.m. at Millstream Brewing in Amana on March 17 with two bands that will be present. And that will be the Beer and Pretzel 5K also at 7 p.m. at Millstream Brewing. On March 18, Des Moines St. Patty's races at 7.15 a.m., a marathon, half marathon, and 5K, Iowa State Capitol, East Locust Street, and Pennsylvania Avenue in Des Moines. There are various registration fees. And on March 19, Bob Black and Ban Joy, that is from 2 to 4.30 p.m. at the Farmer's Mercantile Hall in Garrison, $12, kids are free. It's a Sunday afternoon of Irish, bluegrass, and Midwestern Roots music in celebration of St. Patrick's Day. Refreshments are by the Garrison Library. In the hoopla section in the food category, Chew on This by Elijah Decius. Pinoy Cafe, a Filipino restaurant booth at Nubo City Market, will be closing its doors after nearly five years in business. Owned by Blanche Vega and her family, the business started as stands at cultural festivals and fairs. In September of 2018, it opened in Newbold. Pinoy Cafe's last day will be March 26th. After five years of growth, thanks to loyal customers, owner Vega said her priorities have changed. As much as I would love to grow my business even more, I choose myself and family first, she said in a post on their social media page. Maybe someday I can do this again without hesitation and with 100% focus, if God permits. Vega, who studied restaurant and hotel management in college, had always worked toward the restaurant goal with a vision for a brick-and-mortar cafe. She moved from the Philippines to the U.S. with her husband about 15 years ago. And a couple is opening a new coffee shop in Mount Vernon this summer. Katrina and Joel Anderson former co-owners of Wake Up Iowa Coffee, have been running a roasting and distribution business for the past seven years. When Mount Vernon Pharmacy moved down the street to a new location, they decided to move their roaster to the vacant spot, 113 First Street East. They also decided to start a new brand, Little Scratch Coffee Roasters, after parting ways with a former business partner. The new space will provide beans for home brewers to brew at home, complemented by plans to hold coffee education workshops. The new shop will have a walk-up window to serve the brand's signature espresso bean, Pinhook Premium, 
and some cool experimental coffees plus teas, drip coffees, and espresso-based drinks. Our drinks will emphasize seasonality and utilize locally sourced ingredients, Contrita told the Gazette. The owners of our building are shaping the quite large space to suit the needs of their tenants. With our build-out of a quarter of the space and iron leaf press taking a quarter as well, they still have some square footage to fill. With final touches on the build-out in progress, Little Scratch Coffee Roasters plans to open to the public by May 6, when Chalk the Walk starts in Mount Vernon. Appointments for coffee bean pickups are available in the meantime. The Anderson's former brand, Wake Up Iowa Coffee, is served at Basta, Goosetown Cafe, Wild Culture Kombucha, Trumpet Blossom Cafe, among others. Little Scratch is sold at several corridor retailers as well. Returning to this story from the front page by Vanessa Viller, UI Athletics shares DEI action plan in $4.2 million settlement. University of Iowa Athletics 2023 Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion 5-Year Action Plan, which the department will get help operationing, op, operationalizing under terms of a new discrimination lawsuit settlement, lists 20-plus actionable activities like designing spotlight recognition awards for DEA and I teams and departments who exemplify our values. Make this a competition on which teams generate the greatest cultural change, the action plan urges. The plan, which UI Athletics finalized in January and posted online this week, identifies five core strategies aimed at fulfilling its commitment to foster the advancement and respect for diversity, equity, and inclusion for all student-athletes, coaches, and staff. Those strategies are education, evaluation and assessment, infrastructure and sustainability, collaboration, and infusion of leadership. Actionable activities under its leadership umbrella include creating educational programs that uncover the insecurities we all have and provide solutions that impact our first impulse reactions, honoring and recognizing national events that impact the lives of underrepresented students and staff and create conversation spaces, establishing consistent DEI messaging and communication, launching a diversity conversation series, highlighting history and authentic stories of diversity within athletics, creating greater accessibility to leadership discussion and psychological safety where staff can bring their whole self to the table and not have to self-monitor to feel appreciated for who they are despite the insecurities, and promoting and communicating key DEI messages that can be shared externally and reinforced in public venues inside and outside of the university departments. The plan also has UI Athletics creating more conversation spaces about actual cases to use as teachable moments for educating staff and students on inequities and cultural values, establishing DEI accountability in performance evaluation, and enhancing relationships to foster an improved presence in targeted, diverse communities with our student athletes and coaches. The five-page action plan is dated January 13, a month before 12 former Hawkeye football players signed a $4.2 million settlement, settlement terminating the discrimination lawsuit they filed in November of 2020 
against UI, the Board of Regents, and coaches like Kirk Ferentz, offensive coordinator Brian Ferentz, former strength coach Chris Doyle, and UI athletic director Gary Barda. The lawsuit is among several alleging discrimination filed against UI athletics in the last decade. This week's $4.2 million settlement, $2 million of which was paid for by taxpayers out of the state's general fund, prompted State Auditor Rob Sand to urge UI President Barbara Wilson to terminate BARDA without severance or further compensation. There's a certain point at which an institution needs to communicate to the public that it isn't just a group of insiders protecting each other, Sand said, and that's what I think this settlement feels like, unless BARDA's gone. Although the State Appeal Board approved the settlement without working in a clause mandating BARDA's removal, State Treasurer Robbie Smith also urged a change. I would encourage the university to re-examine the relationship with not only Gary Barta, but Brian Ferentz and others named in recent lawsuits, Smith said. UI President Wilson hasn't responded to requests for comment. Barta, age 59, made $1.2 million in the 2022 budget year, the most since he started as UI Athletic Director in 2006. Barta's contract has him making an annual base wage of 650000 through June 30 of 2024. The deferred compensation package outlined in his most recent contract extension, signed August 2019, would pay out $1.4 million, given $150,000 he forfeited from the plan during COVID-19. Although COVID losses for left the department with a $42.9 million deficit, in the 2021 budget year, its income since has rebounded, soaring to its highest level, $126.8 million in 2022. The department expects to generate even more this year, $129 million, thanks in large part to $57 million from the Big Ten Conference. State Auditor Rob Sand, the sole state appeal board member who voted against the recent settlement, cited the department's conference revenue in his denial. For the first time, they want part paid by the taxpayer's general fund, even though they now collect tens of millions annually through the Big Ten TV deal, he said. Enough is enough. Non-monetary terms of the lawsuit settlement have the university, among other things, hiring Leonard Moore, an American history professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and former vice president of diversity and community engagement to help operationalize UI Athletics' DEI plan. The DEI stipulation in the legal settlement comes as Republican lawmakers pursue a bill to curb DEI-related spending, programming, and training across Iowa's public universities. Turning now to the top weather story, this by meteorologist Joe Winters, Beyond the Weather. March continues to roll on. Of course, we are once again dealing with snowfall on Thursday. This seems to be a trend since February. Clouds, of course, have been present in our nighttime sky, but it looks like some clearing will develop next week. That gives us an opportunity to view a faint constellation beyond the weather. Cancer the crab is the faintest of the 12 signs of the zodiac. That means it's the hardest to find in our sky, but with summer humidity not yet with us, now may be a good time to look. 
The easiest way to find the crab is to locate the constellation Gemini. To the lower left, you will find the constellation Leo. Concentrate on the area between the two and you see Cancer. Happy stargazing. And again, that snow is likely for today with Cedar Rapids experiencing winds out of the east at 15 to 25. Looking for a high today of 36 and a low of 29. Iowa City looking for a high of 37 and a low of 28. The normal high for today is 43. The normal low is 24. We set a record high of 66 degrees in 1977 and a record low of 3 below zero in 2003. Those clouds and some precipitation stay with us through Sunday. Sunset tonight is at 7.07 p.m. And sunrise tomorrow is at 7.26 a.m. That gives us 11 hours and 39 minutes of daylight. We are in the full moon phase with moon rise at 8.29 p.m. and moon set at 7.55 a.m. And that does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It's Thursday, March 9. I'm your reader, Kathleen. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening, and have a great, safe day.
from the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. A decade ago, there were typically 20 earthquakes a year that were large enough to feel in the central and eastern U.S. But in 2015, there were over 1,000 of them. Why? It's mostly because we're pumping more water into the ground. The boom in U.S. oil and gas production over the last decade has brought many more oil wells, which also produce water. Most is naturally occurring in the formation, and some was injected by operators to allow or improve the recovery of oil and gas. In both cases, the water will likely have picked up salt and other minerals from the rock, making it many times saltier than seawater. Operators may re-inject this water to continue to liberate oil and gas, but more often, there's too much to handle. So it's trucked or piped to disposal wells where it's pumped down into deep saltwater reservoirs. Adding large volumes of wastewater increases the pressure in these rock formations, which can allow natural faults to slip more easily than they normally would, causing earthquakes. To address these quakes, regulators and the petroleum industry are monitoring disposal wells and shutting down those that could cause damaging seismic activity. And they now think that managing wastewater injection more carefully should help. There's still more work to be done, and university research centers, like the Bureau of Economic Geology, are conducting major studies with the aim of minimizing the risk of earthquakes while maintaining the benefits of domestic energy production. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.